0: Hello and welcome back to another week in the world of Saster with your host Harry Stebbings from the 20 Minute VC and you can hit me up on Snapchat at hstebbings. And the show is brought to you by the main man and godfather of Sass, Jason Lemkin and you can hit him up on JasonLK on Twitter. Now for the show today, you might remember we had Nicholas Desayne from Algolia on the show a couple of months ago and we were chatting the other day and I said, come on Nicholas, give me the name of one founder you've been most impressed with. Nicholas replied immediately with one name, Chad Aramura. Now, Chad is the founder... Fa- And CEO at iron.io, where he drives the team to build the world's best cloud infrastructure services. Now, they do have some pretty sizable clients, including the likes of Google. Twitter, Zenefits, Whole Foods, and they have backing from some incredible investors from the likes of Steve Anderson's Baseline, Bain Capital, Matt Occo from Data Collective, and our friends at Sapphire Ventures, just to name a few. And prior to co-founding Iron.io, Chab was CIO and founder of All Dorm Inc., a collegiate media and marketing company that provided fundraisers and viral marketing campaigns for clients such as Volkswagen, Domino's Pizza, and Visa. However, it's now time for me to shut up and hand over the mic to the one and only Chad Aramura, co-founder and CEO at iron.io. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Chad, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Huge thanks to Nicholas at Algolia for making the introduction. And thank you, Chad, for joining me today. Thanks, Harry. Looking forward to it. I'd love to get started today with a bit of a brief founding story on you and how you came to create iron.io. So what's the kind of founding story and the aha moment for you? (laughs) <laughs> well, I'd love to say that I
1: scanned the horizon, looked out five years, and said, the world's going serverless. Let's go there. Um, but it went, it went more like this. Uh, my co-founder and I scratched our own itch. Um, we were running a small eight-person dev shop, and uh, some of our early customers were deploying uh, IoT-like applications to the cloud. Um, we were collecting data coming from networking devices, solar panels, Wi-Fi devices. We needed to collect and store and transform this data in the cloud. Uh, And honestly, just to speed up our own internal development, we started building out the platform uh, and it allowed all of our developers in our company to deploy little bits of code. We called them workers. They would trigger based on data coming in uh, and we would scale these things out horizontally in the cloud. We made it multi-cloud. And that really became the foundation of Iron Work which is our, the core of our platform today. In 2012, we wrote an article called The Future of Serverless, and that sort of put a stake in the ground for this whole concept of serverless computing. And so, we're glad that we at least have that
0: proof that we looked forward uh, a couple of years. I'm really intrigued with regards to serverless computing. Am I right that it's almost a category creation uh, element that you're engaging in with Iron?
1: I would say it is category creating. Yeah, I, you know whether you believe the term serverless is going to be around in another five years or not is sort of here nor there. Um, but. There's really two ways to think about serverless. Uh, you know, it's a state of mind, and it's a software architecture, and I'm happy to go into
0: details about each of those. Absolutely. My, my, my intrigue is more in terms of the category creation element, and when you're entering a, a new and undefined category as you were putting your stake in the ground, how did you figure out a pricing mechanism when you were starting with no relative competition to, to equivalent yourself to?
1: Yeah, you know, the category creation aspect of it is was pretty simply just that we were creating something that allowed developers to ship a bit of code to the cloud and then run that sort of infinitely. And that introduced a new billing model where customers would only pay for what they used at any given time. And it really flips the whole model of compute consumption on its head. And so, early on, we recognized that customers would pay for what they used and, and no more. And that the fact that we could actually execute code in very small bits, so we're talking like seconds at a time, that enabled us to keep our cost down in terms of resource allocation on the back end. So, it was almost by accident that we fell into this concept of category creation, which we're seeing being trumpeted by some of the largest companies in the
0: world now, including Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In terms of kind of with that um, pricing mechanism, did you have a t- target customer and a defined customer segment that you were going after in the early days? You know, initially, we went after any customer
1: that gave a damn about this type of architecture. (laughs) Yeah, there's your one swear word. Damn? (laughs) Um, Damn, that's as as high as I'm going to go. No, we would go after any customers that cared. And it turns out that developers very much cared about this concept of serverless computing because it really flipped the whole concept on its head in terms of never having to think about servers underneath. Again, it's really at first and foremost, a state of mind when developing software and developers were the first ones to care. So like any startup, we saw customers from very small companies, early startups, trailblazers, bleeding edge companies. Um, And then over time, we started to move
0: more into mid-market and enterprise customers, as you can see from our logos on our website today. Mm -hmm. How did you look to harness that developer-centric community in the early days? Uh,
1: very classic uh, marketing around content. I mean, our company our company now is 50 over half engineering. And so we encourage content creation. We're very active in communities such as the Golang community, the Docker community, um, containers, uh, RocksDB is a database we use on the, da- on the back end. A lot of times we find ourselves just talking about the cool technologies that we use, how we architected them for scale, how we are... We're and are one of the largest um, production use cases of Docker in the world, launching millions of containers per day in production for our customers. And so, just talking about this is great content for developers, and they find it at places like Hacker News, um, they find it on uh, news sources like Read White Web, and, um, and uh, high scalability is a common one. And so, these are great
0: places to find information about companies that are doing cool things. In terms of, you said that about kind of moving into the mid-market, because it is, as we said, a developer-centric product, and there is some complications just to the core understanding of serverless. It's not not a social media management tool. So, in terms of that, I'd love to hear how much of a role education plays in the onboarding process for you of prospective clients.
1: Yeah, educational
0: is critical to understanding these new architectures.
1: Uh, But honestly, this is why we love Amazon so much. They've been driving the concept of serverless deeper than we could ever have gone with only 50 people in Iron. Now the question over the past couple years has transformed from what is Iron to... When can we get iron? How do we get our hands on a multi-cloud version of what Amazon offers? And then the one other piece to that is all that said, content, like I said, is king. You know, we're always writing, speaking, and developing content. And that's how developers disseminate hype from reality. And they pick apart serverless to transform their respective businesses. So it's always catchy to have a misnomer like serverless, which is common like link bait. Uh, who knows what it'll be called in five years, but the ideas and concepts behind it are
0: quite quite game-changing. I'm intrigued. How important a role do you think actually content marketing plays for you with regards to conversion in terms of, you know, is it the likes of branding from Amazon on the serverless community? Is it content marketing? Is it events? What do you think is the most prominent marketing channel that drives conversion for you? what I've learned over the years is,
1: uh, it's a little bit of everything to choose a product now is so much different than selecting a product. Even 10 years ago, selecting a product 10 years ago, went a little like this, uh, your boss went to a conference, saw it, uh, at a booth, and then came back and said, we're going to use this and told you that you're going to use it, engaged with the sales team. And the sales team would sell you on that solution, and then you would buy it and give it to your developers. Now, developers are choosing technologies on their own, bringing them into the enterprise and effectively going through the entire procurement process, kind of grow, land and expand model. We've seen this whole model flip on its head. Open source is taking a front row seat to this uh this decision tree that developers are going through, you know, you have, if you believe that there are, let's say 10 touch points with a developer before they're even comfortable with using your, your software, then you have to be everywhere that they are. That being said, Content has the highest distribution for the lowest amount of money and investment. Um, You can be in front of thousands, hundreds of thousands of developers with a simple article that gets to the front page of Hacker News. But the thing is, you can't just do it once. You have to drumbeat it year over year, month over month, year over year, just constantly. And that's how you stay in front of these developers. And eventually, as long as you have a great solution that uh, solves a a challenging
0: problem, you'll, you'll get an opportunity to be in front of them. Do you think the bottoms-up sales cycle that we've seen emerge in the last few years, as you mentioned there, uh, do you think that favors your approach with Iron?
1: Well, Iron's
0: taking a, a bit of a different approach
1: in terms of our go-to-market. I know that you're interested in go-to-market, so we definitely depend on the bottoms-up approach where developers come in, they select a plan, they use it, and then they expand from there. Uh, but we very much also focus on enabling private clouds and cloud service providers to also offer the great functionality around a driven computing, serverless computing on their cloud. That's a much different model because you're not coming in with a single developer kicking the tires and expanding. It's more of a platform sale, your traditional enterprise sales approach. So, for us, it's really both. On one hand, we're selling developers on the public cloud so they can use the service. We know we're building the right thing. Um, We stay close to the end user. But on the other half, we're building an enterprise sales team that can actually sell into deployments for private cloud and and other local
0: um, public cloud service providers in other countries as well. What to you are the biggest challenges into selling into the big CIOs as compared to the kind of bottoms-up sales cycle of um, developers adopting the product? Well,
1: you know, they are also selecting technologies that their line and business units are recommending to them. Um, the challenge can be that for a small company like ours, you know, we don't have presence in the standard magic quadrants. We don't have presence in the, you know, Forrester wave in the sort of traditional... Uh, analyst selected pieces of material you know where we are increasingly on things like Gardner cool vendor which is interesting but again it sort of pegs you as a small company um, so it's harder to be it's challenging to be part of these things unless you're 200 300 500 person company you've raised 50 million to 100 million, or I just recently saw that there is a 600 million dollar something raised by pivotal which is another classic enterprise sales approach so
0: being larger than life is is important but also difficult with regards to, to these kind of large contracts So, when looking at some of your clients i mean they include the likes of twitter uh no small companies uh these are very big tickets so how do you view then the balance between mammoth companies like twitter with with very large acvs but long sales cycles compared to smes with potentially lower acvs and much shorter sales cycles and less regulation how do you view that balance
1: Yeah, I mean, for us, um, it's we definitely believe that after it gets beyond a certain ACV, uh, even developers want to talk to someone on the sales side. So, we've had an inbound sales team, um, and we're also growing our enterprise sales team to go after the larger deals, whether it's private clouds, hybrid cloud, multi-cloud type of deals for serverless solutions. Um, But we are um, more and more reintroducing the self-service model, where you can automatically gain and consume and upgrade all on your own. So, it's a completely self-service model up to a certain ACV. And I think that's an important buying cycle and buying process for developers that we actually made a transition from for a while and
0: we're moving back into now. You said about your enterprise team now, going after specific clients. How important a role does ABM play for you in your marketing strategy? Oh, account-based marketing. Yeah. I mean, that's extremely important um, because,
1: for example, with a private cloud, multi-cloud deployment, there's you know very, very targeted customers that you can go after. In the public cloud service provider space, there's maybe 50 customers in the world that are far enough along in their digital transformation journey that they're ready to consume the technology. So, um, having enterprise sales folks that have Uh, leveraged experience with these customers that have leveraged relationships with these customers is extremely important now those reps do not come uh inexpensively like you would with a very sort of traditional inbound model pick up the phone
0: take an order it's a different dna with regards to the as we said the very large clients is the long-term plan to move downstream with time to smes you know, well,
1: again, we we've gone the other direction. So we've start. You know, when we started the company five years ago, our average ACV was probably twenty dollars. Wow. Then it went to a hundred. Then I went to a thousand. Then I went to ten k, and now easily the byte size is is around a hundred k for customers. And so um, we've definitely moved upstream over time, and now we're moving into the very large deals, which are more of the around those multi cloud type of on premise deployments. Um, and then we'll self serve everything up to the kind of twenty k cv
0: range. Have you seen the sales cycles change with time? I mean, you know, we often hear they lengthen, and it's much more arduous with the regulation. But you having seen it from the twenty dollar price point to the Hundred thousand dollar price point. How have you seen the the journey itself change? I'd say that the journey is definitely faster than it used
1: to be. Uh, even you know, five ten years ago, um, it's you know, it's pretty easy. Anything that can go on a credit card can happen almost immediately, and we tend to find that to be maybe up into the six to 10 K range at the high end for credit card purchases. Um, and those can happen very quickly. I mean, literally, uh, within the first couple of weeks of, of trying the technology beyond that, you enter procurement processes, the larger the company, the harder the procurement process, um, we'll see anywhere between a four to six month sales cycle. And then on the very large deals, 12 and up, which is tough because the world changes a lot in 12 months, small companies generally raise money to last runways of 18 months. So you can imagine on an 18 month run way, sustaining 12 to 18-month sales cycles is very difficult. That's why you really have to leverage uh, investment money from, from financial institutions. <laughs>
0: uh, and then I want to dive into a quick fire round called the 60-second saster. So, 60 seconds per answer. I give a short statement. How does that sound? That uh, sounds just fine. So, let's do your favorite SAS reading material. What kind of book, blog, newsletter, writer is your favorite for SAS content?
1: Well, uh, of course, I read Saster. And of course, and, uh, of course I, I can't imagine not starting that conversation with that. Um, I read Quora, which happens to have a lot of saster around it, thanks to Jason Lemkin and all nine clones of him.
0: He does have, uh, He does have nine little oompa who just do the functions for him, yeah? He,
1: he must, yes. They've also pegged me as uh, reading about the brain and surviving the apocalypse, so my morning uh, newsletter from Quora is always very interesting. Um, I, read, I read Dan Primack's term sheet, which just gives me a little sense of the market and who's getting an investment, who, where the IPO market is going, uh, financial advice. Uh, but to be honest, I mostly just talk to a lot of people, um, most of them willingly, uh, because that's how I generally consume information is uh, I have to talk to so many people during the day and even in the evenings that it's such a Uh, it's such a sort of rich data set and high, high volume data set that I can generally form opinions just from the people that I talk to on a day-to-day basis.
0: (laughs) What do you now know that you wish you'd known when you started? (laughs) Uh, gosh, where to start? I would say
1: number one is hire a product leader early, like seriously day zero, Um, Oftentimes, entrepreneurs and founders, well, not oftentimes, almost always are very product-centric people, but you become so busy so quickly um, with the business that you ignore to hire product leaders early, and then it's a harder thing to hire later on. And then... Number two is build values and culture into the DNA of the company again from day zero so with in my case you know you seem to think that DNA the culture will sort of just mimic the DNA of the founders and it will just happen but it doesn't you really have to architect and create it as you go and I would architect that in from day zero.
0: And then let's talk about how you deal with stress as a founder and a CEO. Well, uh, number one would be my wife. Of course she
1: is, uh, she supports me all the way through it, all through the ups and downs. Uh, And she's been there from the beginning of of the business. So, so, you know, I love her dearly and turning off from the business is is key. You know, I know that there's this concept of work life balance, but that's way too oversimplified because reality is it's always gray. Like you're thinking about your business 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, but you have to really make an effort to turn off because if you turn off your mind, you turn off the business, it'll help bring more signal through from non-work life. And that's, how you
0: can strike a balance. And then I want to finish today, and this isn't a quick fire, so don't worry about uh, time restrictions here, but it's just on the scaling of iron. And you mentioned there about hiring a product leader uh, in the very early days. So, first question is, would hiring a product leader be your first hire? Absolutely. Yes, it is it is the number one hire that we'll be looking to make here very soon as a, a leader that, that runs product. And then in terms of customer success, we have had the game site on the show, Nick Mater, and, and he said customer success should be your first. First uh, tire, maybe a little biased there, Nick. But but to what extent do you agree with this, and how core cool has customer success been to your growth with Iron? That, uh, well, so we've already made a fantastic success
1: hire. We've got a fantastic success team. Um, our VP of success, Irene Chang runs our whole department and, uh, they are absolutely essential hats off to them on being on the front line with customers, also growing customers over time, sometimes amidst challenges with, with accounts. Um, so I would certainly make that a top three hire early on. In fact, I wish we had been able to recruit her earlier. Um, but yeah, success and product are two things that you sort of uh, ignore in the beginning of the company formation. And I would definitely make sure those
0: are on the list. And you said about culture there and really being deliberate to bake it into the the company DNA. So, what do you do to really bake that in with the growth? As you said, you've got 50 people now. You're growing more and more with every day. I saw on your LinkedIn kind of hiring in all jobs. Um, So, so talk to me about how you bake in that culture with the excessive growth of iron. Yeah. I mean, getting
1: together as a team on a regular basis is critical. That's one thing that we've actually uh, neglected to do over the years. And so now we're starting to try and bake in more and more opportunity for the team to get together, not just both in the office and out of the office, I would say ha- having an office is is a very important step, which oddly enough took us many years to do, um, and we've now got a great presence here in San Francisco at Seventh and Folsom. We'd love to have anybody by if you're in town. Um, but having a place to call home is important, um, and then instilling, well, really understanding the the DNA and the values of your company, and making sure that you uh, you exhibit those values at every given point, and you celebrate when people on the team exhibit those values is important so that you can continue to nurture and harness those within the organization.
0: And then final question, I do have to ask this one. You raised uh, funding recently from our friends at at Sapphire, along with other fantastic investors. But how was the fundraising process for you? What do you think you did well, and what would you change with the next funding round? (laughs) Well, we got funded, so, so that that's, a well. <laughs> that's a positive.
1: That's a positive. And we've got some fantastic investors, as you mentioned. Um, and so they're part of the team. They've stuck with us for a long time. Some of them way before serverless was even a term. And so hats off to them. For improving, uh, I would certainly talk to more investors. Uh, it's extremely exhausting, and it's like, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of one of my least favorite things to do is to be out fundraising because I really want to be in the office building a company and working with the team and working with customers. But it's extremely valuable to be out in the marketplace talking to investors because not only do you get a chance to hone and craft your message that resonates, but you really get to take in raw input from countless people with varying degrees of different backgrounds. Uh, and you can distill this into a market perspective. So unless you're like trying to colonize Mars and really nobody else's opinions matter, uh, it's really critical to be out in the marketplace talking to really intelligent people. And on top of that, the great ones they they make introductions before they really even you know know if your business like intimately because they want to add a value and they know that connecting people within the industry is something that they a value that they bring. And you never know what's going to come from that next connection.
0: Well, it's been absolute pleasure to have you on the show today chad i can't thank you enough for sharing the incredible journey of iron and very forward to seeing you scale into the 500 man or person sorry uh 500 person <laughs> company and and i really appreciate you taking the time out today all right harry appreciate it thanks for having me on the show Again, a huge hand to Chad for giving up his time today to appear on the show, and to Nicholas at Algolia for making the introduction to Chad, without which the show stay could not have happened. Likewise, if you love the show stay and do not want to leave the world of Sasta, then you can follow Chad on Twitter, at Chad Arimura. That's A-R-I-M-U-R-A. Or you can follow me on Snapchat, at H Stebbings. Or you can follow the main man and godfather of Sass, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter, at Jason LK. As always, it's been such a pleasure to bring you- today's episode i so appreciate all your support you can always email me your feedback i always love to hear your thoughts harry at the 20 minute vc.com but for now thank you so much for listening today and we cannot wait to bring you friday's episode with jim stonem at new relic